Hey, folks, on today's episode of the Total Soccer Show, Daryl and I are going to be answering some of your listener questions, uh, including who is the Michael Jordan of soccer? Who will be the next most divisive player on the U.S. men's national team? What would have happened if the U.S. had qualified for the 2018 World Cup? Our top five pure number 10 playmakers and much, much more. Many great questions. We really enjoyed this one. But first, I wanted to let you know that in a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure, cancer does not stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, the Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps, inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill. Climb your way. Join us for the opening ceremony and then take on your climb with their heart-pumping playlist, Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. That's lls.org slash bigclimb. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who's once again excited to be answering listener questions. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Once again and always. Hello, buddy. How you doing? Uh, hello, I'm good. But not least because you texted me this morning saying, hey, I'm really excited about today's listener questions. We do you have some a good ones. It's a good batch, right? It's a good batch of what I'm going to call head scratchers. Yes, because when we uh, sort of looked at this, I think you said there were seven questions. And I was like, oh, like generally with listener questions, there's like one or two that you're going to put a lot more thought into and some that you can answer. Like, what's your favorite position? You can answer that one pretty quickly. Pretty much every single one of these, I ended up having to spend a decent amount of time researching to the point where I was like, oh, I'll start looking into this stuff at like, I think, 930 this morning. Uh, and then just before we were supposed to start recording, I was like, oh, I should probably go bathe because I've still just been <laughs> reading stuff all day. So here we are. I'm excited to talk. So you went down the rabbit hole researching these questions. A little bit. I'm very excited for your answers. Uh, before we get to uh, today's listener questions, I want to make sure that listeners to the Total Soccer Show have seen the Enough is Enough video mm. um, that was spearheaded by Weston McKenney. No, like 21-year-old Weston McKenney basically has put together a video with a lot of U.S. national team players, some non-U.S. national team players. Uh, Corey Gibbs, his agent, is in there. Um, and it's essentially um, all about sort of Black Lives Matter, police brutality, um, and a, a lot of very famous U.S. players standing behind that message. Um, enough is enough is the message, and it's interspersed with some really violent scenes of police brutality. I'm, I yeah. know you've seen this, Taylor. I have. And I also saw, I think, the tweet he put out announcing that he was going to put this video out, not to like hype it up, but basically to explain like I like like the decision was made to depict some of these scenes because the brutality of the moment needs to be sort of conveyed properly as opposed to just a bunch of athletes in their sort of quarantined homes talking about yes. uh, things. And it really does. It like, risks being like the people. Imagine video, right? If it's just people yes. talking into a camera saying Very enough true. is enough. It's a strong message, yes. but it's a lot, lot stronger if you're expecting just to see a bunch of athletes athletes saying your phrase and mm -hmm. instead you're seeing the thing that they're talking about and it's a massive reminder of of just what it is we're up against exactly because i think you can sort of if it's just a message of people's talking heads you might be able to just dismiss it as like oh you play in germany you play in canada like you, you don't know like you're out of touch you don't really know you can't really tell us what's going on but i think to have those images and those clips 
in there as well, it, it sort of drives home the message certainly more than I think just saying this is enough is enough. This isn't okay would have done. I would say if you haven't seen it to maybe prepare yourself accordingly because yeah. it is, it is pretty graphic, but simultaneously it like is not gratuitous, I think is the way to explain it. The link is in the show notes. We would encourage you to watch it. Um, I'm, I'm also, I'm encouraged by the role Weston McKinney has taken in this. Yeah. And I'm encouraged by the fact that the pl- most of the players that he has involved, it's essentially the core of the up and coming US men's national team, right? It's Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Christian Pulisic, Zach Steffen, uh, Josh Sargent is in there, Gio Reyna's in there. Um, Antio- Antonio Rudiger's in there. Unfortunately, we can't have him play center back, but the, the rest of the guys in there are sort of the core of the US men's national team. And it, it's got Michael Bradley's in there. It's got me really excited that, um, like from a soccer perspective, that going forward, this might be the identity of the U.S. national team. We're going to have a racial justice, social justice U.S. national team. And it, it's it's kind of a I think it's a really positive identity for a team to have. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think like some of that isn't as surprising. Like Michael Bradley wore, wears the rainbow armband yes. uh, against Mexico after Trump is elected. And like there have been moments of activism, but I don't think this unified and consistent uh from the team and certainly not from the younger members of the team because yes. it's the west mckinney is, that like yeah sorry I, I cut you off but i was gonna oh. say it's the younger members stepping up and taking the lead on an issue because this is like don't forget like this is a weston mckinney who like when he was first getting called up by sarakin like we would see him in the training ground like he's like playing the game where if you'd like if you let the keepy up he's go down he's gonna flick you in the ear and that was the more like kind of juvenile like hey i'm here i'm having fun i'm here yeah. to kind of like lighten things and i and to see weston mckinney Still has that mentality, obviously, but then to also be able to sort of understand the severity of the situation and be a part of conveying that to people who might otherwise turn a blind eye. It is a step in leadership that, like, I'm sure was not maybe the way he wanted to kind of, like, uh, increase his leadership potential, but simultaneously is a very important role and a very important thing he's doing. And I don't want to get carried away, but Mm -hmm. I am feeling, like, somewhat optimistic in that positive things are happening. um, There's the news here in... Richmond that I'm sure people might have seen about not just about the monuments but also um, about the civilian review board of the mm-hmm. of the police being a being a possibility here in Richmond. Um, you've got the Minneapolis news where they're going to make massive massive changes to the police department, real fundamental changes from what I understand. And then we've got some soccer related things like Jeff Carlisle reporting that U.S. soccer is planning a meeting on Tuesday where they will discuss. Um, a repeal of policy 604-1, which is the policy that was implemented after Megan Rapinoe took a knee in sympathy, um, in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. And they, they passed this uh, policy, this law 604-1, that all persons representing a federation national team shall stand respectfully during the playing of national anthems at any event in which the federation is represented. Essentially mm-hmm. banning protests, right? Banning right. protests in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. U.S. soccer might be rolling that back on Tuesday, mm-hmm. which, which I guess, better late than never is probably yeah. the uh, the perspective on that one. But given that they had released the statement, uh, sort of as many professional teams did and, and sports teams did, like it would have been nice if they had sort of made those two things the same, and they had released a statement saying, you know, we stand, we stand in solidarity, and also we'll make it so that people can kneel in solidarity yeah. if they so choose. And it's worth noting there's no statement from U.S. soccer just yet. This is uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Carlisle has people on the inside. Yeah. Jeff, Carl- Jeff mm-hmm. Carlisle has some sources. So maybe U.S. soccer will make a bigger announcement once they've actually taken some action. It is kind of um, a, uh, I don't know what the word is, like a, 
a, a clerical maze to get certain mm-hmm. things done at US soccer. So the na- the maze has to be lab- uh, navigated first. Yes. Bureaucracy <laughs> requires navigation for sure. Yeah, there we go. And the um, Brits, I feel like, uh, according to the Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy, are the most capable of navigating that bureaucracy. So maybe you need to get involved, Daryl. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I'm from that generation of Brits that understands bureaucracy. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> um, shall we get to today's listener questions? Sure. First up is a really tough question. Mm-hmm. It's from Tate Rosenhagen. Here's the full wording of the question. Who is the Michael Jordan of soccer? Not necessarily the best of all time, Tate says, but most influential in changing the game or putting a face to soccer. Mm-hmm. Tate also says, I hope this makes sense. For me, it's Ronaldinho. The question made sense. It being Ronaldinho didn't make sense to me. I think it makes sense to Tate. And I think mm-hmm. here's the reason, because uh, I was trying to understand Tate's nomination for Ronaldinho. In like 2004 to 2006 or so, Ronaldinho was the face of soccer, right? Yes. There's all this Ronaldinho uh, Nike uh, viral viral video ads when his new cleats were coming out. I'm sure he was on the front of the FIFA video game. He was the most celebrated player in the world going into the 2006 World Cup. Um, the, the, so I don't disagree that like Ronaldinho was the face of soccer at a certain point. I'm guessing it was when Tate was fully getting into soccer. But I think the big thing here is that the face of soccer keeps changing, right? Mm-hmm. We're living in the Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo era right now, probably at the tail end of it. And then there'll be another face or faces of soccer after that. I'm not sure that soccer has a singular figure like Michael Jordan. Because Michael no, Jordan, so. for, for me, he became... I'm not sure he, if he changed basketball because I don't understand basketball enough. Um, but I do know that he was the face of basketball. Um, I knew nothing about the NBA or basketball in the 90s over in England, but I did know who Michael Jordan was, right? Mm-hmm. But that's because basketball wasn't the global... It's more global now, but it, it wasn't the global sport that soccer is. So that's why I have trouble with this because obviously they're two different sports with two different global profiles. Yeah, and it's also two different sports with two different global profiles. And when we talk about these athletes, in a lot of ways, we're talking about potentially athletes from 50 years ago, as is the case with Pele. So is Michael Jordan still the Michael Jordan of basketball 50 years from now? Probably. But that did factor into it for me because, like, the answer to me is obviously, like, or, like, when I first saw this question, the answer was obviously Pele or Maradona. But then the question is, like, are they still that level of famous? Do they still have that reputation on the field. And I think like we, we've done shows about both of them. We know they're very influential, but I do think there are other people in there that I think better fit the category of Michael Jordan of soccer, at least right now, because I do agree with you. It is an ever changing thing. Well, let's make the case for Pele. The reason that if I had to choose someone to be the Michael Jordan of soccer, I would choose Pele because mm-hmm. my understanding is that he was the first global superstar mm-hmm. because even though soccer was, you know, spread around the world, um, it's like the 58 World Cup is where, you know, it's televised a lot of places and soccer goes, goes global and Pele's the star of that tournament and he's the name that everybody knows, right? This teenager that wins the World Cup for Brazil. Yep. And then he's kind of the undisputed best player in the world for the next 10, 15 years, right? And so- that's the thing, if I can jump in for a moment, just to say like that is where I think like you can draw the parallel because... Like, if I ask you who's the best basketball player of all time and you say Michael Jordan, like, people are going to be like, yeah, okay. But I think... I would have gone Bogues, but... <laughs> I mean, obviously. But from a talking head, uh, like, Fox Sports 1, ESPN, like, Sports Center standpoint, 
it is like the answer and simultaneously like the disappointing answer. Whereas saying like, well, maybe it's Kobe, maybe it's LeBron. Like you get those sort of uh, like options, and those are maybe some yeah. of the other players we're going to talk about. But I do think it's probably Pele uh, number one right now. I agree. I also think that the weird wobble here is I think Jordan has done a better job of protecting his brand in a way mm-hmm. by not really being out there and doing a lot. Right? There's the documentary recently, obviously, I mean, has put a lot of focus. I mean, the on Washington Jordan. Wizards tenure would uh, would ha- like to have a word with you, but other than that, yeah. But he's not like turning up to a bunch of events. It's, essentially, uh-huh. here's the the big argument for me is Jordan was very smart about how he made his money during his time as a basketball player. Obviously, like the Nike deal and all that. Pele, it seems, was maybe not so great at managing his money and didn't live in a time when soccer was as commercialized as it was later. And essentially, with all due respect to Pele, you do see a lot of him shilling for various products. There's the uh, Pablo Mara at The Athletic had that MasterCard soccer skills video with Pele wearing a MasterCard (laughs) tracksuit recently. There's a lot of him like uh, doing watches and you know what I mean? He's like, essentially selling out uh, decades after he was at his peak because he didn't get the chance to make as much money as possible uh, in that time. And Jordan has never had to do that. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, like, I know what you mean, but simultaneously, like, Michael Jordan talking about the underwear he wears on a plane is a, is a fairly, like, for a period of time, was a very ubiquitous thing. And and to me, that is sort of like he had the brands that he wanted to be identified with and was okay with being identified with. I would say that, like, Michael Jordan's brands were a bit more Michael Jordan-esque, whereas Pele's were maybe, oh, you're going to pay me some money? Let's make it happen. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense he, to me. Um, it's also, my thing. It's also good. It's just the passage of time, right? Mm -hmm. This is the thing you said at the very top, which is Jordan, it's only been, what, like 20 years or so, Uh, whereas Pele has been retired for a long, a long, long, long time. And more people know old man Pele now than they Mm -hmm. know teenage and mid-20s Pele, who was unstoppable. Yeah, like that makes like a lot of sense to me because like memory fades and understanding fades with it. My issue though is when you talk about like most influential in changing the game or putting a face to soccer, like... I am a novice when it comes to basketball knowledge, but I don't think of Michael Jordan as being a game changer in that, like, everybody started to play the way he did. It's not as though everybody hadn't, it hadn't occurred to them to be as good as Michael Jordan. <laughs> like, it's, that's not, that wasn't the, the limitation. And so, for me, when I think about this, I think of, like, what are the qualities that I most identify with Michael Jordan? And so, to avoid Big the, like, easy, Number one, <laughs> uh, number like there is the debate of is he the best ever, but I kind of avoid that, and instead I think of Michael Jordan as wanting to win more than anyone else to the extent that he will drag his teammates to victory and make it like do whatever he has to do to win. He shows up in clutch moments. There are insane stories about his competitiveness and about what he did to be able to win. All of that sounds like Ronaldo to me. That sounds mm. like Cristiano Ronaldo Cristiano in a lot Ronaldo. of different okay. ways. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a convincing argument. I can't really argue with that. Except to say that there are other people like, say, Pele or Leo mm-hmm. Messi. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I think the point is there are lots of people who could be the Michael Jordan of soccer. Yeah. And Cristiano Ronaldo is definitely in that bracket. It's the ruthlessness, though, because that's where, that's why Ronaldinho didn't quite make sense to me, Tate, is because. All we know about Michael Jordan is he was like working all the time, even in Space Jam. Like when he wasn't filming, he was practicing to be better. Uh, yeah. that's, that's an obvious uh, point there is, you know, the starring in Space Jam. Whereas like Ronaldinho, all we know about him is not that inclined to work super, super hard and yeah. instead wanted to live it up a bit. And you see that in the drop off in his sort mm-hmm. of post Barcelona career, basically, right? He just had, he had these few years, basically from PSG to Barcelona, where he really was magnificent. He probably was the best player in the world. Um, and then there's the drop off, right? It's yes. like, it's like he immediately, he spent like the last five or six years of his career 
being, as I understand it, like that final year when Jordan played for the Washington team. <laughs> but just to elong that, elongate that out over like several clubs and several years. I, I'm guessing that it was that you weren't entirely sure what the Washington team's name was. I know but I like, it was I the like... Bullets and it switched to the Wizards, but I don't know when. So I don't know what they were called when Jordan was playing. He played for the Wizards, but I, I'm still choosing to believe that uh, it was in solidarity for them being called the Bullets. <laughs> so have we answered this question? I think so. My answer is, I think Ronaldo. Is there any uh, consideration for David Beckham, just in terms of being the most famous soccer player, even if not the best? Probably. It, it's, it's tough, though, because, like, especially with soccer, like basketball, you've got the five guys on the court. Soccer, you have literally more than double that when it yeah. comes to the number of people. So for Beckham to have not been the sort of main 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 figure because like yes he is he is at times the best player on that Manchester United team or that Real Madrid team but there's so many other good people around him I mean that is probably the same argument for Cristiano Ronaldo to some extent so maybe that's that's uh that's being a bit hypocritical no, but I think so, yeah. Ronaldo at least was at many many points the focal point of his team right he was mm-hmm. the focal point of the Man United team he was the focal point of that uh, Real Madrid team where e- even Beckham like when he was playing for England he was the most famous but he had Owen and Gerrard and uh, Ro- Rooney other players that are arguably better at soccer than he is mm-hmm. um, even at Man United and Real Madrid he definitely had players who were better at soccer than he was like Zidane's there right Yeah. so yeah Beckham's never got the same talent uh, argument that Michael Jordan has that's why mm-hmm. I kind of asked it as an addendum after I, I made sure that we'd already answered the question. Is it strange that he's we in, haven't mentioned he's Maradona? In Appendix here? A. Appendix A is where, where Beckham is. Okay, what about Maradona? Yeah. Should he be in here somewhere? No, I think there's kind of the Ronaldinho argument mm-hmm. with Maradona, right? Which is that he was nah, the yeah, it's great. A good call. Yeah. Yeah, he was the greatest at some point and he was unstoppable. The, but he did like he didn't maximize mm-hmm. what he was capable of over the course of his career. You could argue that he has the same, for, I've read his book and he, he definitely has the same Michael Jordan thing of, I'm going to invent an enemy and I'm going to do everything possible <laughs> yes. to prove them wrong. And that's my driving force, right? Like it's no, we talked about this when we reviewed the England Argentina 1986 quarterfinal. <laughs> yeah. It's no coincidence that that was against England four years after the Falklands War, right? No. It's not yeah. a coincidence. Uh-uh. Um, so he does have that element about him, but that he kind of, uh, he, he dropped, his performance level drops after a little while, let's say that. All right, all right. Uh, a- any other players, or should we move on to our next question? No, I think we'll just end up naming right. great players, right? I feel like true. we've covered this pretty well. But thank you, Tate, for a genuinely excellent question. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. And thank you to Grey Hair Gaming for another one. Uh, this, this one, again, involving people who are kind of front and center in the spotlight. Uh, once Michael Bradley has aged out, or maybe he has already, says Grey Hair, uh, from the U.S. Men's National Team, who do you think the most de- divisive player on the senior team will be and why? So my initial knee-jerk reaction was to say, why, why do we have to choose a divisive player? Why do we mm-hmm. have to, why do we, why does there have to be one? And then you look back and there always is one. There right? always is one. It was Michael Bradley. It was Kyle Beckerman. Like going back and back. There's always one player that Boy, everybody team. thinks, uh, yeah, there's, yeah, there's always one player that everybody thinks shouldn't be on the team, right? Yep. I don't want it to be, but I think it's going to be Josie Altador. Yeah, I, to the extent that I I didn't include him in my list just because I put him in the same category as Michael Bradley, basically. Yes. And so he's only, what, 30 right now, mm-hmm. Josie Altador. He'll be 31 in November. I personally feel like people don't fully appreciate how good Josie Altador is and what he brings. 
And he seems to carry some of the blame for Curva in a way mm. that Michael Bradley does as well. I think because they were like the senior players on the team, people focus on them and think it's their fault that we didn't get it done in Trinidad and go to the World Cup um, in 2018. But then you also add in the injuries, which mean he's sort of, he's in and out of the team. Um, and you add in that we've got these young up and coming players like Josh Sargent or like Ricardo Pepe behind him. And I can see a bit of a stampede for, for us to move on from Altidore I would argue way, way, way before we actually should be moving on from Josie Altidore. I think that's a really good argument uh, because, like, it also stands to reason that when we talk about, like, who should be the starting forward, if we go with a in a four two three one, let's say, who is going to be that one? And you could name a couple names, but right now it does feel like if everybody is fully fit, it's probably Josie Altidore. Absolutely. But to your point, there's going to be a lot of people who think, like, oh, he's past it. He's too old. He's not good enough. He couldn't get us there in 2018. Why are we sticking with him? That all feels very similar to the criticisms we know about Michael Bradley. Yeah. Whereas if you watch the game, you watch what he's doing, you understand at least understand to a greater extent the importance of that player in the team. That does feel like Josie Altador. Good call by you, Mr. Grove. So, I mean, the best thing Josie could do is obviously stay fit and just bang mm-hmm. in a bunch of goals and shut everybody up. Yep. Yeah. I have, that would I work have for me. two more answers for you, yeah. uh, though. Uh, one of them is, is sort of sad. One of them is, I think, sort of realistic. The realistic one would be Jackson Yule. Right now, I think he benefits from not being named Michael Bradley or Will Trapp. But he is still an MLS midfielder who does a similar job to yeah. those two. And I think that once that newness wears off or there's another option in the midfield, I think we'll get the kind of same MLS-centric complaints about Jackson Yule that we do get about Michael Bradley. Uh, yeah, so and that's, I think to double down on that, I think we might end up with a situation where everybody wants, say, Tyler Adams to play that quote-unquote exactly. six role. Mm-hmm. And it may be that Greg Berhalter always wants... Um, a player who's like a passing first, a tempo setting midfielder to play in that role. And he just sees maybe Tyler Adams as more as an eight who gets up and down and closes down all over the place. And yeah, Behalter's always going to want a certain player in that role. And it's just that Jackson Yule and Will mm-hmm. Trapp and Michael Bradley fit that profile. And then like it's the player that nobody wants in the team, but he's sort of key to what Behalter wants to do. Mm-hmm. So I think Jackson Ewell could be a nominee. The other one is maybe a bit more surprising. It's a man we've already talked about today. It's Weston McKinney. I also made notes about Weston yeah. McKinney. All right. I have three reasons for that. Okay. I think we already see some of it in the form of like, if he weren't playing in the Bundesliga, I don't think he gets looks. Like, I think there's already an argument of like, oh, he's just in this European league, so he gets called in. I think there's also some of the like, what's his best position? We still don't know. Is he that good on the ball? Can he do this job for the national team? I think you see some of those concerns. And the third thing, which is more realistic, but also more depressing, is like talking about players taking a knee. I have seen some of the responses to Megan Pino, and they tend to err on the like some of them are oh she's just about her it's just self-promotion she only cares about herself and I think you do get some of that feeling of like I don't like this person because of the political stance they've taken so I don't want them on my team I think that is some Ooh. of the reaction I've seen and I worry that Weston McKinney being as outspoken as he has been you'll get some of that as well but you'll get the really annoying coded of like well he's only in it for himself and that's really clear from his like past behavior and I, I... think that that's not nonsense and I'm doing my best job not to curse because I don't want to have to edit it since I'm the one who is doing the editing later but <laughs> that little thing I think there may be some of that in the kind of language in some of the subtext going forward here's the interesting thing if you take Megan Rapino as the kind of uh example of what Weston McKenney could end up going through um soccer fans are mm-hmm. I want to say to a very high percentage pro Megan Rapino all in on yep. Megan Rapino 
I would bet it's the same thing with in terms of Weston McKenney's stance for racial justice, social justice. I would bet the vast majority of soccer fans are all in. Megan Rapino started hearing about it when the US women's national team were in the World Cup. Right. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a topic of wider conversation outside of soccer fans. And it's those people who only get interested once every uh, mm-hmm. four years. That could be when there's some some blowback. You know what I'm saying? That it might yeah, be when I mean, the non soccer fans get involved. I think from the non soccer fan standpoint, I think there's probably a small minority and we've interacted with some of them on Twitter and we've muted some of them on Twitter who yeah, yeah. are still going to be sort of, you know, keep your politics out of my sport and what have you. Yep. And I think that's why Weston McKinney deserves even more credit for taking the stance he has quite so publicly and quite so vocally. So I hope that doesn't happen. But those are the three reasons why I think it might be Weston McKinney ends up being a subject of debate for the next couple of years. I also, he has had some inconsistent performances mm-hmm. for the US men's national team, right? There are times right. when he looks like he's winning every header, winning every ball and every second ball in midfield, and he's connecting all his passes. And like suddenly you feel like, oh, the whole midfield should revolve around Weston McKenney. And there are other times when I've seen him have games for the US where he does the same thing I see him too often mm-hmm. do for Schalke, which is he's trying to force passes that aren't on. Um, I actually think my analysis of this is that Weston McKenney is always trying to make something happen, and you need that guy on your team. But sometimes it can look really bad because he's the one trying too hard when yeah. maybe it's time to to like just sit back and slow down for a minute. Um, I think he'll age out of that. I think he's 21. I think by the time Weston McKenney's a couple years older, he'll just be a more rounded, wiser midfielder in terms of when to go 100% and mm-hmm. when to just slow it down a little bit in terms of the intensity, not of chasing the ball down, but the intensity of trying to force a pass. Um but I can see a period where people just don't feel good about like McKenney's like brilliant one game, not yeah. so good next game. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Inconsistency is always an issue, especially when it comes to the national team. Uh, so a- any other, any other thoughts on Weston McKinney or any other players you wanted to mention? Not re- I could, I could see Christian Pulisic having a lot a of <laughs> hype on his shoulders. And if he yeah. doesn't deliver in certain games, then people being mad about it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I, yep. I could see that situation. But beyond that, but I don't. I don't see anybody else. But he's so good and like so clearly good that he. It will never. You'll never get that Bradley. Like, is he even good enough? Like, oh, he's too slow. He's not good enough to to be on this team. I feel like Pulisic, at least for a while, you can't really make that argument. At least not yet. Whereas uh, the joke I was making earlier, the other ones I had were Christian Roldan and Jordan Morris for kind of similar reasons to what we've already talked about about being. Uh, MLS players and being part of the group and with that comes that feeling of like well is Greg Berhalter actually asking questions of them or are they just in there because they established themselves in a January camp and now here we are Um, I could see a little bit of that but I also don't think like Jordan Morris maybe a bit more than Christian Roldan but Christian Roldan when we do our starting 11s we don't usually have in that starting 11 and I think you have to be a consistent member of the starting 11 to the point where it's an automatic selection to then bring about some of that frustration that we saw from uh, from people from Michael Bradley. I'm with you 100%. There'll be grumbles when Roldan is yeah. maybe on a roster, but because mm-hmm. he's not in even Greg Berhalter's starting 11, that there's not going to be such a big uproar about it, right? Um, Jordan, Jordan Morris is a good good shout because we might end up with a um, a surge for, you know, wanting Gio Reyna, Tim mm-hmm. Weyer, um, Ulysses Yanez, like all these other attacking wingers that everybody's really excited about like people want them in the team but Jordan Morris is just doing the job and getting it done Uh, maybe when he's fit again Paul Ariola might run into the same the same problem so they may just sort of get get trampled under the um the 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 excitement about up-and-coming young players 
Yeah, and, and I think for Jordan Morris especially, he had such a strong season that I think there is that feeling of like, oh, like he is like for, he really did become like an automatic starter for me for a period of time. Yeah, but absolutely. if that form dipped and suddenly he looked not as convincing and didn't look as confident, and then you did have some of those players you mentioned getting starts for their club teams in Europe and playing well and becoming starters, maybe that's where you start to have some questions asked. I can say this won't be the last time we talk about the U.S. men's national team on today's show. We'll be back sure with be. more men's national team questions um, after today's sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Policy Genius. Policy Genius wants to know that if you're wondering, is it even possible to buy life insurance at the moment with, you know, the coronavirus and all that? The answer is yes, you can buy life insurance during a pandemic. And Policy Genius say, if you have loved ones depending on your income, you probably should. So Policy Genius isn't a direct insurer. It's an insurance marketplace, right? So they talk right. to life insurance companies um, on their platform. They're keeping track of the changes in the market and they're doing that so you don't have to. You can just go to policygenius.com mm -hmm. and you can go through them to get covered quickly for the best price. Right. And then that means you could also, with the best price, save up to $1,500 or more uh, by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. And like it is a morbid reality, but it is the reality that like that is something you need because what coronavirus has shown us is that life is uncertain and you want to leave like your loved ones in the best possible position you can if something horrible happens. And that is why life insurance exists. So though it is a dark thing to talk about, it is also an essential and necessary thing to talk about, in my opinion. And if you're going to buy life insurance, once you apply, the mm -hmm. Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape for free. So if you hit any speed bumps during the application process, like they will free. take care of everything. Um, so if you're one of the many people looking to buy life insurance right now, but you're not sure where to start, start at policygenius.com. Policy Genius will find you the best rate and handle the process completely. As Daryl said, they'll get you and your family protected and hopefully give you one less thing to worry about. So you can go back to worrying about uh, is Michael Bradley deserving of a spot on the national team or should it be somebody else instead? <laughs> You ready for the next question, Taylor? Let's do it, my friend. Uh, do you have, I, your turn. Do you you have the time machine handy that we've been using oh for the Champions Champions Cup of History? The Wayback Machine. Uh, I do. We're going to go back in time, uh, courtesy of Brian Jacobs. What would have happened if Clinton Dempsey's shot had gone in instead of hitting the post against Trinidad? Uh, can you game it out for us? Which World Cup group would the U.S. have been drawn into? And how would the 2018 World Cup have gone for the USA? Footnote for this exercise, it's important that the way we got to the World Cup was with that goal by Clint and not a save by Howard. And I, I emailed Brian to ask, why is it important that it was the yeah. goal by Clint? And basically, Brian wanted to make sure that um, Dempsey went to the World Cup in 2018. Well, there's another key point there. That would mean he breaks the goal-scoring record, right? I mean, if he scores again... Oh, he would score with this goal. Yes. Yes. I didn't so even then, think that's, about that. That's one way it's different, is yeah. we have an outright winner for the most goals by a national team player. There you wow. go. Wow. Um, right, here's, here's a big thing that would have mm -hmm. happened then. If that goal had gone in and not hit the post, Clint Dempsey, we're 2-1 down against Trinidad at the time. We finished 2-2. We finished 2-2. That would have put the U.S. third in the hex. We'd be level on points, 13 points with Panama and Honduras. We would have the better goal difference. Both Panama and Honduras had a negative goal difference, partly thanks to the U.S. beating them 6-0 and 4-0. Yeah, various yes. points. So we would have gone through, no playoffs, straight through in third place. We're going to the World Cup. So game it out. What would have happened? Um, mm -hmm. You and I did a lot of work on where we would have been ranked in the world and what pot we would have been in and how the draw would have gone. 
Mm-hmm. I'm willing to explain it, but I'm also aware that I've been talking for a long time. So your call, Mr. Rockwell. I feel like I'll probably talk for a long time later on and probably already have. So go ahead, game it out. Explain <laughs> it to us. So here's how it works. It's not just that you could look at, say, uh, Panama, who went in our spot, and just replace where Panama were drawn with us being drawn there, right? Because the right. crucial difference is when they do the World Cup draw, they're in four different pots based on world ranking, right? Panama were in pot four. We would have been in pot three because we would have been ranked 27th in the world. We would have displaced Tunisia and knocked them down a spot. Iran were the worst team in pot three, so they would have gone to pot four, top of pot four. Panama disappeared because they didn't go everybody else moves down a spot, right? So what I've done then is like re- recreated the draw and we, instead of Tunisia, we would have taken their spot. And ironically, we would have ended up mm-hmm. in the same group that Panama ended up in, but in Tunisia's spot. So right. Belgium, England, USA, and then in Panama's place, we would have Morocco. Mm-hmm. So it's Belgium, England, USA, Morocco in the group at the 2018 World Cup. That's can the I, situation. Can I one thing just to clarify, yeah. which is maybe unimportant, but important for me. What you, you are saying this as though like this is absolutely what would have happened. And I just want to clarify, like, is this for sure the way it would have gone? Or is no. this your best estimation of, of what would have gone down? It's my best estimation because, cool. okay. I mean, I, I, I know that I've got right which spot we would be in in the seedings mm-hmm. and the rankings and where in the pots we would be. Um, but once you introduce one or two variables like this... Right anything could have gone differently, right? There's a whole knock-on effect. For example, you can't have, uh, apart from in a couple of places with UEFA teams, because there's too many of them, FIFA make it so that you can't have two teams from the same confederation in the same group. So there might be some knock-on effect earlier up by changing these teams around that the whole thing is just completely different, right? But yeah. we, once we get to that point, we can't, it, it turns into the butterfly effect with Ashton Kutcher, right? We just can't keep, we can't keep figuring out the different uh, realities no. of what would have happened. Because like, like you had them as 27th. I think I saw some places that had them ranked a little bit higher, which could be incorrect. But if that's the case, then like, like maybe the United States gets drawn instead of Sweden, but Sweden are in a group with Mexico. So then we have to go somewhere else. And exactly. then it gets really confusing. Yeah. So I think it's better for sake of argument to stick with, like the format as you have it. So we have the USA going into a group with Belgium, England, and have you already said the final one? Morocco was the fourth go. seed in mm-hmm. this group. Yeah. Before we get to the games, I want to oh talk boy. about what the roster would have looked like. Let's do it. Going into 2018. I couldn't find the quote, but I'm very yeah, sure that Bruce Arena said at some mm-hmm. point that um, basically he was using players that were experienced and he trusted and he knew to get through the hex, to get through World Cup qualifying. And the plan after that was to possibly bring in some younger players, right? So yeah, I Tyler think he Adams, may have said it before and after, just to clarify. I think, oh, really? I think he said it like as qualifying was happening, he alluded to like there will be changes. Yes. Like I think he even said like when we qualify and mm. then when interviewed or maybe in the book after the fact said the plan was to more or less overhaul the squad in preparation for the World Cup. And we would have had a November friendly window, right? We would have had January camp, and we would have had March friendlies before the preliminary roster is named. Then we'd have May and June friendlies going into the World Cup. I'm really confident that Tyler Adams gets his shot somewhere yeah. in there. He was already tearing it up as like a right wing back type situation for Red Bulls. And he moved to midfield in March 2018. I think Tyler Adams makes this roster. I think there's a chance Weston McKenney makes this roster as well. Um, yeah. He was already playing for Schalke in 2017. I have an 11 for you if you'd like my starting 11. I'd love it. Yeah, let's get it. All right. 
it needs it needs your revision a little bit. For example, do we have Tim Howard starting in goal still, or at this point, do we think maybe Zach Steffen or Brad Guzan sort of jumps ahead? I think Tim Howard goes to the World Cup. I th- I, I think it goes for sure. I think he starts at the World Cup. Okay, yeah. So you've got Tim Howard starting. So then, like, there was uh, some speculation that Demarcus Beasley maybe gets his, I believe, fourth World Cup. Maybe he goes as a backup. But I feel like Anthony Robinson might have fit with what Bruce Bruce Arena wanted. So we could have seen Anthony Robinson get more opportunities because we do see him. I think in the June friendlies of 2018, that's where he starts getting minutes, different coaches, different preferences. But I did have Anthony Robinson in the conversation as a left back as well. Are you dishing Viafania? Yes. Okay. All right. Based solely on, because I don't even really remember, <laughs> like in terms of like how rock solid I thought some of these, these gentlemen were, but it is entirely predicated on that arena quote about how he would have like revitalized the whole squad. Yeah. So I think there would have been a lot of changes. I have it basically as Robinson Brooks, if he were healthy, which I don't think he would have been, but if he had been John Brooks, if not, I think it's Parker and Miazga, and I think it's DeAndre Yedlin as your right back. I had a midfield three of Adams, Bradley McKinney with Christian Pulisic ahead of them, and then a front two of Bobby Wood. And Josie Altador. I mean, I could definitely see that happening. I think there's maybe a lack of width there. Yes, there um, is. So I so for for the record, the formation that Bruce Arena loved during the hex was four one three two, right? Yeah. And it was a little bit it was a little bit too much, right? It was Michael mm-hmm. Bradley as the one, and then it was usually like Nagby, Pulisic, Ariola, or Fabian yeah. Johnson as as an yeah. attacking three. And then Wood and Altador ahead of them. Mm-hmm. There's no way he sends out a four-one-three-two against England and Belgium, right? So I imagine this. I think he gets a little bit more sensible and goes like four-two-three-one. So really similar shape, except he pulls out a striker. Probably pulls out Bobby Wood and adds a defensive midfielder to sit alongside Michael Bradley. I think Tyler Adams would have earned that spot. So that's that's kind of what I was thinking, except what I did was basically make it from a four one three two to a four three one two and have them sit a little bit deeper. But either way, I'm with you that I think Tyler Adams is with Michael Bradley in some form of a midfield. Okay, then I have it ahead of that. Pulisic, probably Nagby again, and probably mm-hmm. Ariola or Fabian Johnson um again with that yeah. that lineup that that Bruce Arena's got. I mean, we could both be right. He could have switched back and forth between those shapes. But I know Bruce Arena, he likes to have a winger, right? So I think that's why I think he would have gone with uh, 4-2-3-1. Yeah, I think I think my it doesn't really matter. We're talking about theoretical lineups and what he might have done. The point is he would have had some new names in there, but then some of the more familiar faces yes. that we did see in Kuva. Only this time it's a draw, so we don't have that memory of them uh, being quite so brutal yeah. this time. Oh, the one argument I make is about I think Omar Gonzalez goes because I think Bruce Arena loves Omar Gonzalez. Oh, I forgot about yeah. that. I could, man, I cannot remove that mental block. You're absolutely right because if we don't lose that game, it's still not a good game from him, but it's not quite as catastrophic of a game. Yep, he is absolutely still in that conversation. And, he's, isn't and he? they've worked together at the LA Galaxy right and Bruce is all in on Omar yeah Uh, all right I'll add him in there oh man okay (laughs) so how do we think it goes Daryl what happens okay here's my here's my take I think Mm -hmm. big picture I don't think we get out of this group right you can't look at this 2018 World Cup and look at two semi-finalists in England and Belgium no and say that we would have gotten out of the group right nope Um, I think we come close though because it's still like it's still like the the missing generation, right? It's the lost generation. It's it's not a strong U.S. national team. And Tyler Adams is younger than he is now, not as experienced. McKenney's younger than he is now, not as experienced. They're going to have a limited influence. Um, and big picture, I think 
Pulisic comes out of this as a name that everybody yep. knows, right? That I am on the exact same page with you, except that I think you're right that it's maybe a little bit closer, but I still think like from a points on the... Like, I feel like we finished third or fourth in the group, and I think though some of the games are maybe closer, like maybe we lose 2-0 to Belgium, but it's not quite as comprehensive. That's, that's what I've got. Okay, can and I take I you through it. my scores? Or have you got sure. scores of your own? Um, I do, but go ahead. So, go, go ahead. Well, if we're replacing Tunisia the way that mm-hmm. the fixtures would have gone is our first game would have been against England, right? Yep. So I have us drawing that game 1-1. We go 1-0 down, but Dempsey comes off the bench, which was always what Bruce Arena wanted him to do, right? Remember, this is Dempsey with a confirmed heart condition. Um, Clint Dempsey comes off the bench, combines with Christian Pulisic, sets him up. Christian Pulisic scores the equaliser, and we all celebrate a 1-1 draw with England. And the Sun is very happy that they didn't go with a cocky headline this time around. <laughs> I appreciate your optimism. I don't think I can remove the negativity I feel towards the 2018 World Cup from my heart. So I had it similar to you as like the England is up 1-0, US pulls one back, and then it's a late winner from Harry Kane, which does set the tone for like we had feelings of optimism, but then they're yeah. sort of dashed at the last moment. Okay, so we're on two tracks here then, right? On my yeah. track, we're 1-1. On your track, we lose 2-1 because Harry Kane scores in the last, what, 10, 15 minutes? Um, you, we drew 1-1, right? We drew 1-1 in my reality. I think you might have said we won 1-1, which is another way to put drawing against England who go to the semifinals. I think that's fair. (laughs) There we go. The second game against Belgium. Mm -hmm. I think we look pretty good. We look fine. But Belgium are just too good for us. Belgium were the best team in this group. Um, We lose 2-0 to Belgium. Lukaku and Hazard with the goals. And this this in my mind was... the bench to try and save it. Yeah, But this is where we learn that just bringing Dempsey off the bench for the last 30 minutes is not going to save us every single time. Agreed. And in my mind, it was the United States concedes like inside the first 15 minutes. Yeah. And then it's 1-0 for the rest of the game until like the 80th minute yep. when they put in another one when the United States is pushing and it finishes 2 Exactly. We, we went with the 4-1-3-2 for the last 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, yeah, exactly. And that's when and Belgium striking. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in the, Tunisia then. So in your reality, we're out at this point, right? Oh, Morocco, excuse me. Yeah. We've mm-hmm. lost two games. So in yours, we're out. In mine, we have one point and we're playing the weakest team in the group. So there's still a glimmer of hope. People around the US are still tuning in to watch USA versus Morocco. Um, Dempsey starts. We finally just, we, we take a gamble. Dempsey says, my heart can take it. I, I, I care so much, Bruce. Put me in, put me in, coach. Um, we win 2-0. Pulisic scores again. Dempsey and Pulisic score the goals. But Belgium go through on top and England go through in second with a better goal difference because they hammered Morocco when they played them. All right. All right. So that makes you happy, I'm guessing, as an England fan? Yes. And then England go on and win the World Cup, obviously. Of course, obviously. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, and in my reality, this is like a heroic, not heroic, but an impressive performance that gave people a lot of hope, uh, but not enough to get out of the group. Yeah. And, and that said, like, again, it, it's, it's a credit to you that you're positive and you see it as <laughs> like it gives them a lot of hope. I did sort of take it from a, a, a negative perspective that ends positive. But, like, this would have been kind of what we expect from U.S. soccer. If you go to a World Cup, you fight heroically, you do what you can. Maybe you get a point here, maybe you get a point there, but in the end it's not enough. But we fought valiantly, and on we go. Things stay as they are. We still haven't had the drastic sweeping change that I think maybe a lot of people, myself included, expected. But I think we've had some change and are continuing to get that. And I do sort of tend to try to believe that maybe that culminates in a bunch of young players in 2026 coming together to win that World Cup. (laughs) And then we'll get those think pieces about was missing the 2018 World Cup the best thing that ever happened because it made the United States change it up. 
Do, I mean, do you really think we're a contender for the 2026 World Cup? Because that's not. I think what, we've answered that question. It's not what you said last no. week. <laughs> I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is optimistic, Taylor. You're talking to Mr. Grove. <laughs> so I would say we come out of this feeling okay about ourselves, but realizing we need to move on from like you know the Dempsey generation because he's obviously going to retire for medical reasons, right? After this, yeah. like the World Cup was one last risk. We're going to move on from Tim Howard, who I didn't mention, but I think he's maybe at fault for one of the goals against Belgium because <laughs> um, he really was not the same player in 2018, right? If you watched him play for no. the Colorado Rapids, I love him, but I don't think he was, he's up to the, his former standard. So we move on from Dempsey, we move on from Howard. A lot of the same moving on that eventually has happened over the last couple of years, but I think it just happens more, it's more of a peaceful transition of power as opposed to um, a revolution. Yeah. All right. I like a peaceful transition of power. I think that's a good note. Next question then, Taylor. What's the next question? All right. This one comes from John Youngblood. Thank you for saying it previously because I almost forgot. Uh, Who are your top five purely number 10 playmakers of all time who preferably did not play center forward? I'm interested in that little addendum. Mm -hmm. Is that like just someone who wasn't sort of a creative striker, essentially? He's looking for Uh, real playmakers who just essentially did very creative things to uh, create opportunities for other people. Yes, I think that's Classic probably it. And I, and I think it's also rooted in if you go look up like the best playmakers of all time or the best number 10s, you get a lot of Messi, Neymar, Hazard, Bergkamp, those types of names I where see. I would say that they more made me maybe more famous or as famous in other positions. Yeah. Not necessarily like central and dictating the, the patterns of play. Right. So not goal scorers, but Mm-mm. yeah, proper, proper playmakers. I've got yeah. my list of five. I'm sure. I'm not saying these are the best playmakers of all time. They're just the five that I thought of and the five I most enjoy. Um, how do, you, do, you, do you want to go like back and forth with our picks? Sure. Um, okay. My first one that came to mind was Georgi Haji. Um, Georgi Haji <laughs> uh, from two. Romania, Stade Bucharest, Barcelona, yep. etc. The reason I love Georgi Haji is at the, I believe, 94 World Cup. Oh, we watched it. We rewatched this with the Cooligans mm-hmm. on Twitch recently. He was the first player I ever saw shape to receive a ball in central midfield and then open his legs, let it run through and turn and go and leave the opposition just completely flummoxed by what just happened. That one moment just made me think, I didn't even know you could do that. And I've just seen this man do that on my my, my very weird television compared to modern yeah, televisions. I, I like that. And I think of that, I think of that moment. or I, like, I can't think of that specific moment, but I can think of lots of uh, Gorgi Haji doing difficult things for defenders to deal with. But it, it, it's also, for me, a critical component is like, yes, they can score. We're not saying they never score goals, but it's sort of as they like, all right, fine, I'll score a goal versus, all right, fine, I will pull four people in and then play you in to score the goal. And I think uh, Haji could do both of those things. So he was definitely on my list as well. So we both saying Haji for our first mm-hmm. uh, first round. Okay. Um, he was number two for me. My number one, uh, I'll jump ahead in the order, was Marco Echeverri. Because uh, ah. that is the one, I tried to think of this from a perspective of players who like I sort of grew up or I have a really soft spot for. And I blame Manchester United because they didn't really have a number 10. <laughs> or at least none that like <laughs> you could make an argument, but maybe not. Like David Beckham was kind of the playmaker, as we talked about on the recent episode yeah. of the International Champions Cup of History. So in teams that I supported, where I remember having this player that I, I just thought of as being that next level, that was Marco Echeverri, who I will always go back to the quote, of he played a ball so well that it looked like the ball had eyes. <laughs> um, next up on my list, it's not in any order of preference, it's just as they occurred to me, um, Dragan Stojkovic. So Ooh. we didn't get to talk about Dragan Stojkovic when we did the profile of Red Star Belgrade because he was the best player on Red Star Belgrade in the late 80s and he made the move to Marseille, right? So mm-hmm. unfortunately, he's never going to be profiled in the Champions Cup of history because he switched teams at the wrong time. But oh, Taylor, the highlight videos. 
My, <laughs> my love for Stokovic is based purely on highlight videos. There is one video that is purely um, back heels by Dragan Stokovic, and it is not a short video. It's like seven minutes. <laughs> and is he the reason why you love the back heel so much? Is that what it is? I mean, kind of, yeah. Or no, I think it's. I think the relationship's the other way around. I love back heels, and so that so I love this video. <laughs> You know, <laughs> this is a chicken and egg situation, right? All right. <laughs> so, but it, either, either way, Stokovic was not a chicken because he was brave enough to pull off the most inventive uh, flicks with the outside of his foot that you've ever seen. And that's not, it's not even like he was a one trick chicken and this was all he could do. He, you know, he dribbles at people. He's got the shoulder drop. He's got all kinds of, uh, a lot of number 10s have that thing where you just can't shake them off the ball, right? They'll just keep turning in a circle and you just keep chasing them and you never ever get there. He's got that as well. He's got so much about him. But then the fact that he produced so many chances with his heel or the outside of his foot that no one saw come in, that there's a seven-minute video you can make of it, of available footage, that's why Stokovic <laughs> has to be in the top five. All right. I like that you've got Stokovic in there. I like that you eventually abandoned your chicken analogy. That's good. I got confused. Um, I think I went back to it as well. <laughs> You did. You did. Uh, we're going to let that slide. We're going to move on to my number three. I'm wondering if you will agree or disagree with me on this one. Do you have Zinedine Zidane in your five, and do you count him as a 10? Yes and yes. He's, I, okay. I, the, the only note I have next to him is the most graceful and the most effective mm-hmm. and the most successful number 10 on my list. I like all of those uh, categories. Uh, a thing that I have talked about before with Zinedine Zidane is watching him again. I don't know why this is so interesting to me but it's the way he runs and walks his feet are like never off the ground for longer than they need to be yeah and i just think of that as being indicative of the way he played that he wants to be in contact with the ground as much as possible so he can change and cut at any given moment and be exactly where he needs to be and he has that level of awareness to know where he needs to be and then his feet follow suit uh that's a minor thing but then obviously there's also just all of the many highlights you can find of zinedine zidane destroying defenses and opening up options and just being all around very very good the things i'm most associate with him as well are the roulette that everybody talks mm-hmm. about he kind of i mean he didn't invent it but he definitely popularized it and almost branded it right the zidane yeah. 360 the the roulette where you just spin 360 with the ball and you're away um and then also for me zidane i don't know if it's just because uh cameras got better but he's the player i think of when i think of bringing a ball down out of the sky and doing something with it at the same time like, like, like can, Zidane, you, can you give an example? Like a high ball to Zidane, he'll bring it down mm. and he'll turn at the same time. Yeah. Or he'll bring it down and kill it and pass at the same time. That's the magic the Paul, of Zinedine Zidane. The Paul Ariola special, if you will. Yeah, the Paul Ariola special. I'm sure Ariola <laughs> watched Zidane growing up and thought, I'll, I'll try that, but in a more limited running up and down the right wing kind of way. I think it's the other way around. <laughs> I think Zidane knew that Paul Ariola would be able to do that. Definitely. And then went back in time and did it himself. Uh, I had Zidane there. Uh, I've done... Th- Three. Have you given three so far? I've or given I three ahead? as well. I've gotten Zidane, right. Stojkovic, and Haji. Who have you got next? Carlos Valderrama. Oh, that is a great, great answer that I'm now bitter I did not have on my list. So for me, Valderrama is the guy that he definitely obviously stands out because of the hair. Um, but he really mm. was like central to a team, to that Colombia team. And he, in a way that kind of frustrates me when watching it, he absolutely slows the game down. Right, He just puts his foot on the ball, moves it around, won't let anyone take it off him, and then he'll just pass it along. And it's almost like he's not making anything happen except controlling the ball and moving the ball and controlling the ball and moving the ball. And then after a few minutes, you'll see him then spring a pass that seemed impossible. And like uh, Aspria is in on goal. You know what I mean? 
I do know what you mean. So, so it's it's the ability to like change up the tempo that stands yeah, out. I like, appreciate that you haven't gone with just the superficial hair aspect of his game. It's like a hypnotist to like mesmerize you, mesmerize you, mesmerize you, and then punch you in the face. <laughs> Uh, well, I have a man who I don't think would punch you in the face because he was relatively quiet, not quite as outspoken as maybe his manager would have liked, which is why he ends up moving to the arch rival. It's Michael Laudrup. Uh, Michael Laudrup is one who I think I probably would not have had on my list if we were not doing the International Champions Cup of history. But talking about that Barcelona team, Cruyff's dream team, and then looking at the Ajax team that he plays for later on, the Real Madrid team that he ends up playing for, and all of the successes, successes he had with very big teams... And I would argue that a lot of those successes, if I can say it properly, are rooted in him being that number 10. Because you have this incredibly gifted playmaker who occupies space so well from that sort of Dutch perspective where interpretations of space and understanding how best to utilize it are fundamental to the way these teams want to set up to attack. Like that three different teams had massive success with, with him in them playing that role is why he, to me, is a very, very good indicator of what you want a number 10 to be. I say this with all due respect to Danish people. Mm-hmm. I think Michael, Michael Laudrup is Dutch. <laughs> I'm gonna, should I check his Wikipedia page just in, to confirm that he was in fact born in Denmark? But like, as in, I often get confused. <laughs> yeah, you know, know what I'm saying? I know. Yeah. <laughs> my, final really one, <laughs> my final one is Juan Roman Riquelme. Um, yeah. So we profiled Riquelme when we looked at the Boca Juniors team, like of the turn of the century. Um, the reason I really like him is I think of him as the, the last true number 10, right? And this, honestly, this is a thing I've read many times and other people have said this and I've kind of like bought it and just believe it. But I, I really think it's true because he was a pure 10 playmaker where he's got no defensive responsibility. The goal is just give him the ball and he'll create something. And he did that at Boca Juniors. He did it at uh, Villarreal. Um, he did it with Argentina, right? Uh, under Peckerman for a while. And it's the last time I've seen anybody be allowed to do that. And he produced results doing it. So Raquel May for being the last true number 10. Now a number 10 has to be more like Kevin De Bruyne, right? Where you yeah. have to get up and down the field. You have to do everything a lot more quickly. Um, and I'd actually, I didn't say this just to plug this, but if you listen to uh, Grant Wall's uh, recent episode with Roberto Martinez, who's the Belgium mm-hmm. national team manager, he talks about Kevin De Bruyne as being a new type of number 10 who does things very, very quickly. Like the opposite right. of Carlos Valderrama. It's about being able to create at high pace. Um, so yeah. that's kind of where we're at now. Raquel May's the last of the slow it down and make something happen because I'm better than everybody else on the field, number 10. Yeah, the fourth, the fourth three, one, two, I'm the one and yeah. everything goes through me and everyone is set up to play around me. Yes. Yeah, I, I had I had Raquel May, uh, Raquel May not me, uh, Raquel May on my list as my fifth one, but I think that's mostly because... The other ones that I considered, I, I don't know if I would consider them to be pure number 10s. And I also don't feel like I know enough about them to confidently say, like, oh, this was the best one ever. But I had, like, Maradona, but Maradona can be a striker. But then we've seen him drop in and do that number 10 job. But I wouldn't say he is a pure number 10. And then It's weird, right? He's include... like a second, he's like a dribbly second yeah. forward, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then, like, Xavi and Iniesta, I don't know if I consider either one of them 10s, even though it's a thing I think they could do. But I think of them as more sort of varied in their in their yeah. in their responsibilities and what they did for Barcelona. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I had this. Yeah, I went through the same exact okay. thing. Yeah, and it's not yeah, to say then, they're better or worse players than the the guys on this list, but it is a different thing that they did for Barcelona. 
Yeah, and then and then the same goes for me with Socrates. Socrates of Brazil is one who, like, in researching him as we have lately and talking about him as we have lately, I see more of him and I see more of how he could be a number ten. But I think it would be a bit more hipster than genuine for me to say uh, Socrates without watching like an hour of his footage to feel confident in that. So in the end, I'm with you. Raquel May was my number five. <laughs> um, so quite a lot of similarities on our list, yes. right? Um, mm-hmm. It's almost like we talk about a lot of the same teams uh, pretty regularly. <laughs> I want to say this, yeah. listeners, these are our favorites, right? Uh-huh. This is a personal choice that Taylor and I have made about who our favorites are. Please don't tweet, no, the player you like, question mark, right? <laughs> these are just the players that we like. It's not a list. Mm-hmm. Nobody has been left off and there's nothing to be upset about. Uh, but since I am the one editing, I am going to replace everything. Daryl, can you just say Freddie Adu real fast for me? Nope. You're not going to do it? <laughs> I can't just put him for all five of yours? All right, fine. I won't do that. But yes, I, I, I echo your sentiments. Mine was a combination of the players that I love to do that job and then the players who I've learned more about who do that job. But yes, I'm with you that it is not meant to be a comprehensive and definitive list of the best number 10s of all time. There we go. Um, all right. Today's show, Taylor, is sponsored yep. by Sunday Scaries. Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies. Taylor, what does CBD mean and can you pronounce it correctly first time? I mean, I can pronounce it the way I pronounced it, which is uh, cannabidiol, but I think that we've established that that might not be the correct pronunciation. I think it's cannabidiol. Okay. Well, maybe this is an al- aluminum aluminium sort of situation. <laughs> I don't think it is. I don't think it is uh, either, but, <laughs> but Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies. There we are. Um, and if you are maybe anxious about our, our five uh, playmakers that we both listed, if you maybe are having difficulty keeping your composure because you're so frustrated with our choice, then you feel like you might be a good candidate for CBD because it does help you relax. It does help you calm you down. If you're Daryl Grove, it helps you focus at the same time. I would say it can help. I'm not going to make mm-hmm. any guarantees because I am not a doctor. I'm going to say You are as CBD... smart as you are because of CBD. That's what I'm hearing you say. <laughs> CBD products with vitamins can help you in all sorts of ways including as taylor said relaxing and keeping your focus actually good good qualities for a number 10 maybe cbd will turn you into a playmaker because you stay nice and calm on the ball but you're focused on getting the job done i'm i would wonder if cbd or performance enhancing drugs or if they're classed as such i don't know if you can test for them or not but if they're legal then maybe they're not in which case yeah maybe that's what people need to to slow it down and feel more confident (laughs) on the ball and concentrate on what matters that feels relevant to a number 10 who's trying to make plays i'm with you daryl let's make this happen and there are all kinds of cbd brands out there but sunday Mm. scaries has become a leading cbd brand for millennials last year sunday scary cbd gummies and cbd oil won top accolades from forbes men's health allure and best products. Do, do a lot mm-hmm. of millennials read Forbes? I guess that's what we're saying here. I mean, as many as read best products is my feeling. <laughs> uh, but Daryl, here's my concern, though. What happens if you are, say, an up-and-coming number 10, you do want to try CBD, but you have this strange policy of steadfastly refusing to pay full price? What could you do then? Yeah, like maybe if you only put 75% effort into yeah, a game because exactly. you're saving exactly. 25% for your creativity. Um, right. You could get 25% no. off your first order at sundayscaries.com with the code SOCCER. That's 25% mm. off your first order at sundayscaries.com. Com. Enter the code SOCCER where it asks for a coupon on the checkout page. And you can find out what product might be best for you by going to sundayscaries.com and using the code. What was that code again, Daryl? SOCCER! 
There it is. Uh, at checkout to get 25% off. And then you kind of live up to your expectations of yourself of not paying full price. But simultaneously, you get all the benefits that we've already discussed. So thank you to Sunday Scaries for sponsoring this episode of the Total Soccer Show. Daryl, another big question for you relating to the U.S. men's national team and also the U.S. women's national team comes from Ryan Hawkins, who asks, where does the U.S. men's national team head coaching job fall in the global pecking order? Is it a top 100 job when you look at club and country? Uh, so those two combined. How about the U.S. women's national team? Is that a top 10 job in the women's global game? I'll take the easy part first, please. Sure. The U.S. women's national team job <laughs> is the number one job yeah. in the women's global game, right? Mm-hmm. The U.S. women's national team job is the job you take to work with the best players in the world. And the expectation is you win the World Cup or you failed, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I won't even have any argument that it's not the number one job in the entire women's global game. The only way I think you could maybe make an argument, not the argument, but an argument, is if you're saying like, oh, if you're European focused and you want to focus on club soccer because that's maybe a bit more stable, maybe there's an argument for Lyon. But I take your point that regardless, U.S. soccer is going to be very, very high up there. If not number one, then 1A or 1B. <laughs> All right. So to the other part of the question, yeah, um, would you like to ask it again to, uh, to yeah, get in this where? Where does the U.S. men's national team head coaching job fall in the global pecking order? Is it a top 100 job when you combine uh, club and country? I am going to say yes. I think it's in the top 20 or 30 national team jobs. I think there are a lot of very good club jobs that you could want. But if I think how many Premier League jobs, Bundesliga jobs, French, Dutch, La Liga, Serie A jobs are out there... I don't think it adds up to 75 other jobs. So, it's tw- so there's 25 national teams. I don't think there are 75 club jobs that are preferable to being the U.S. men's national team manager. I can't prove it. My gut told me this. So um, I my gut answer was similar to yours of, yeah, it's probably within the top 100 for sure. Then I thought about it some more, and I think Ryan very wisely chose that 100 point. I think that is about where it is. And then I thought about it a little bit more, which is to say I uh, had some back and forth with Bobby Warshaw, and I think Bobby summed it up really, really well. And it's it's a difficult thought experiment to undertake, but if you try to do it, I think it makes more sense. Basically, if you're American, it's right around the top 100 jobs. If you're not American, it's not close. It's not even like close to 100. If you don't have any real intent on managing a national team, or if you don't have any connection to the U.S. national team, I don't think it's, it's okay. that high up at all. All right, let's say... Mm-hmm. I don't want to include people who don't want to na- to manage it at the national team level because sure. that like mm-hmm. biases it, it yeah. heavily in one side, right? Fair. But let's say you're not um, you're not interested in American things or you've got yeah. no connection to America, like uh, say David mm-hmm. Wagner. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I say that just to mess with you. <laughs> I say that just to mess with you. Um, yeah. But let's say you're Carlo Ancelotti. Sure, Carlo Ancelotti. Um, no American connection that I know of. You don't think it's in the top 100 jobs he would take. Okay, Carlo Ancelotti is is a difficult one because we know that as coaches get older, the international game appeals a bit more. But I would say, let's say, let's do. Can we do Jesse Marsh as an example? And can we do Jesse Marsh if he's American American versus not American? I guess that's that's kind of what I mean. Is like if Jesse Marsh weren't American and his goal were to manage Bayern Munich, 
does managing the national team do that or does RB Salzburg do that? Just taking a job in the Bundesliga where you can show you can do it and then jumping up to potentially getting Bayern. That's the difference. Carlo Ancelotti is a hard one because he's had so many high profile jobs. Okay. But he's almost, in my mind, a person who could sort of go wherever to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. But isn't that the perfect person then to judge whether this is one of the top 100 jobs, right? Because when you're talking about, say, imagining a non-American mm-hmm. Jesse Marsh, He's still got a career plan, right? And the idea of going into international soccer with not one of like the top five, ten teams is arguably damaging to his career plan to become, say, Bayern Munich manager. So I feel like it's essentially Jesse Marsh is too young and too ambitious to use as the example. I mean, that's but, but aren't you putting that framework in place? Because I would argue that like Carlo Ancelotti is is older and has already done so much that yeah, he might be like, sure, why not? Let's have a lark. But I don't know if that's him looking at it and thinking, yes, this is a very good opportunity for me to have success and grow as a manager. So we're we saying there's no objective way to measure this, right? Because it changes for which coach you're talking about. Well, I've got some I've got some teams for you that I feel like are a good indicator. Okay, but who am I? I Am I Jesse Marshall? Am I Carlo Ancelotti? Am I someone in between? Hmm. I feel like it's become really complicated by having this coach be the. the Let's say let's say you are David Wagner. Let's go there. Okay, (laughs) like why not? Like let's say it continues as it is, and let's say should we say he's sacked by Schalke, or should we say he's still there but other jobs start coming in? Let's say he's still there, but it's not going well. Okay, okay, it's not going well. So So, other options come in. So exactly as things are. Yeah, like I think he's already been at Huddersfield, so I I think he's probably taking almost any Premier League job, maybe all of them, but like he would take the Bournemouth job, right? Yes. Would he take the Bournemouth job right now over the U.S. national team job right now? Bournemouth is a good one because it's a Premier League Mm -hmm. club. It's an established Premier League club, sort of, but it's not, there's not a lot of money there to spend or to, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's not like a sleeping giant necessarily, but my gut says, Oh, Wagner's tough, right? Because he does have those like less than 10 US national team caps. He does have a small American connection. Can we imagine a non-American David Wagner, right? (laughs) He just has no... I'm going to say he would say US because he has that that small connection. Um, Mm -hmm. A non-American David Wagner would take the Bournemouth job over the US job because he would want another shot at the Premier League. All right. And then, like, what about PSV, for example? A team where you can be challenging for the title in your domestic competition and you're... more or less guaranteed some sort of European competition. Yeah, PSV job over the U.S. national team job. Right. And and that's the other thing is like there are so many – like Salzburg is a good example of your – like David Wagner, let's say it doesn't go well at Schalke. If he were offered Salzburg, I think there's a chance he takes that I because think, it, it kind of keeps him in contention for other positions yeah, while still having those op- opportunities. I think Wagner only takes the Salzburg job over the U.S. national team job, uh, mm-hmm. a non-American Wagner, if there's a promise that you get a shot at Leipzig or a – like mm-hmm. a bigger Red Bull team. I don't think the Salzburg job in and of itself, managing the Austrian Bundesliga, is better than managing a top 25, say, US, uh, a top 25 national team job. All right, I've got a couple more for you. I, I don't know if this is necessarily getting us anywhere, but the I, point... I here... honestly think this is this probably ends up lining up with the math. This is math that might mm-hmm. prove my initial gut instinct. Well, So as an example, Bournemouth, I believe, are 17th in the Premier League right now. So, I mean, if you're taking that Bournemouth gig, are you taking the jobs ahead of it? Like, that's where I, I had 17. Like, I think well, you might yes. not take Bournemouth. Let's say you might not take Brighton, and you might not take somebody else. I forget who it is. Let's say you would take any non-immediately relegation-threatened Premier League mm-hmm. job yep. <laughs> over uh, 
um, over the U.S. national team, right? So that's 17 teams right there, mm-hmm. right? I, so my numbers were basically I had 10 to 12 teams that I think you probably take that opportunity in the Bundesliga yeah. over the U.S. national team. I had 8 to 10 in Serie A. I had 7 to 10 in La Liga, 6 to 8 in France, 3 in Turkey, 3 in Portugal, 1 in Scotland, 2 to 3 in the Netherlands, 2 in Argentina, 2 in Brazil. You've got other ones like Shakhtar, uh, who maybe you throw in there. And then we get to the international level. Well, how where, many, how say, many did your clubs add up to? I think it was right around 80 Ooh. in the end. Exactly. That's why this Stuff. is a really close number. But again, I think that's still through a... Well, we can get to that later. But yeah, so it's 80 there. Then you look at international level. And like uh, honestly, if you gave uh, uh, a non-American David Wagner the choice between the U.S. national team and Chile, I think it's probably Chile. Uh, maybe Switzerland? Same argument. I think you probably go Switzerland. And you start to look at some of those teams that aren't in that top, top tier or even in that like next level tier, but maybe in like the B category. His- and because... Go ahead. Here's the thing, though. U.S. Mm-hmm. soccer, I think, can afford to pay better than Chile. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like we, look, we looked this up before recording, right? Jürgen Klinsmann was earning at least $2.5 million a year yeah. in 2014. And I think that number was set to rise. Bruce Arena on that short-term contract got $900,000 a year. And Greg Berhalter, I think there was a huge cut, right? Berhalter's making like yeah. three hundred or so. But if you're mm-hmm. a reasonably big name and U.S. soccer really wants you, you can get a salary that's probably better than the Chile salary. I mean, we would I, – I, I guess that sort of sways it a little bit then, though, that if you're saying like, oh, yeah, but with the U.S. you're making $4 million and in Chile you're making 100000 That's one thing. But the same, same argument goes the opposite way. If you're getting 300000 from the U.S. and 500000 from Chile, you probably take that one. It depends on your profile, right? But US, I'm yeah. saying U.S. Mm-hmm. soccer has the finances to pay mm-hmm. big money, whereas other federations do not have the finances yeah. to pay big money. I would also add in, in the pro-U.S. soccer um, uh, column – that I think there is a feeling around amongst coaches. I'm basing this again on Grant's interview with Roberto Martinez. I would encourage people to go and listen to it because Grant actually asked Roberto Martinez, would you be interested in the U.S. national team job in the mm-hmm. future? Um, and obviously, Martinez was very careful what he said because he's currently the Belgium head coach. Yeah. So he can't say yes. But he talks a lot about how there is this up-and-coming generation and the U.S. is primed to do something big in the reasonably near-term future. I think it's an attractive job for that reason. You could look at it and if you're a soccer savvy person and you could say like, all right, there is a golden generation coming through. I wouldn't mind being the head coach for that period. I have, I have a slightly insane response to that, which is if say one or two more players like continue on the trajectory they're on, could you make an argument that Canada becomes an equally attractive destination, if not more so, from an outside perspective of the state of the United States versus the state of Canada? I don't think it needs a lot more players, right? You've got okay. Alfonso right. Davies, who is ahead of any U.S. national team player, right? Jonathan now. David, and then but, and then a big gap. Yeah, yeah there's a there's a pretty yeah. big gap uh, beyond mm. that. I mean, at that at, yeah. at that point, you're still like converting Scottish Canadian players, like the guy at Rangers, yeah. to to come and play for you. So the answer the answer is no. The I think yeah. the U.S. really is primed for something. And I'd also add in maybe if you're looking, it's too early, right? But if it was later, you could be thinking about, oh, I could be the coach of the team that's hosting the 2026 World Cup. But I guess that would be if we're having this conversation in 2023, which we're not. Yeah, I mean, but but I think what all this gets to, because we're not having that conversation, is that like you have still set up sort of criteria for like, 
It's a manager who's going to be well paid, who's going to spot the opportunity of the United States, who doesn't really like want to stay in Europe or doesn't want to stay in this specific type of competition. And I think if you don't have that framework in place, like the other coach who jumped out to me was like Marco Rosa, who came from Salzburg yeah, and is now at Gladbach. I don't think there's any chance he takes the U.S. job, but I think that is because he's going to want to kind of pursue that career in Europe. He's going to want to stay with club teams. Maybe he gets an offer from Germany, and then it's like, well, yeah, Germany allows me to do this. But if you go to the U.S., I, I think there is a, like, well, now I'm sort of a, like, almost like a niche national team manager. Like, that's the, the role I'm going to be into. Like, Pochettino is another one that I thought about. Like, he's going to take a lot of jobs in South America before I think he ever looks yeah, towards North America, unless there's tons of money. He's maybe too big, yeah. But, I yeah. mean, I don't know. There's a lot I would quibble with you on, with your, say, 80 club teams. Like, I'm not sure that taking any job in Turkey is more attractive than managing the U.S. national team right now. Uh, well, w- from a soccer perspective or from a, like, culture, politics, lifestyle standpoint all of, or both? All of the above. I don't know. I mean, I think that with those three big teams in Turkey and then maybe even other ones, if you want to kind of balance it out, like you've got the the you're living in a major European city. Number one, uh, you are, well, I guess, as long as you're in Istanbul. Um, number two, though, that, like you've got the guarantee of kind of money behind it and the financial backing to compete in the domestic league, but then also theoretically be in Europe. But I think the appeal of Europe remains a major driving force for a lot of managers. But Galatasaray or Fenerbahce um, or Besiktas like regularly in the Champions League? I, one of them is. They go every year. I think, yeah, but I think it's tough. It's not guaranteed, right? And I, I don't know. No, the, fir- the first one, I think the first, I think if you win, you're in the group stage. I think the second one, you either qualify for the playoffs for the Champions League or you go into Europa League. I mean, there's limited, but there's still opportunities. Yeah. All right. So I think, I think what I'm feeling here is we're not going to mm-hmm. be able to agree on a definitive answer because it sounds like maybe you're saying it might be job 110 and I'm saying it might be job 90. <laughs> so well, no, it's really I, hard I, for I go us back to. to my Bobby's initial like where Bobby and I left it was if you're not American, it's not in the top 100. If you are American or have connections to America, it's right around 100 or below. Okay, so I'm outvoted by you and Bobby two to one, <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm wrong. No, I mean Bobby. Bobby went all. In. Bobby had like I would take any Premier League job. I would take any Bundesliga job. I would take most of the jobs in Spain and France and Italy. So I think Bobby was Bobby was a bit more Eurocentric on that one. Like he'd take the Paderborn job over the U.S. national That's team. That's the job? question, man. That's where I wasn't quite willing to go. I did not have Paderborn in my ten to twelve Bundesliga teams. I would, uh, I would take. All right. But like Hoffenheim is a, is a weird one. That Hoffenheim wouldn't jump out, but they've got I take so much financial backing yeah. that like you know you're going to be in the Bundesliga. You know you're going to have the stability. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people would probably take that chance. All right. So we're saying it's somewhere around a hundred, then, right? Mm-hmm. We just don't know yeah. if it's above or below. But you and Bobby think it's below, and Bobby definitely would be happy managing some tiny German teams. So, Daryl, then, all right, so if we go with non-American Marco, uh, non-American Jesse Marsh for a moment. Non-American Jesse Marsh. Oh, you want to go Jesse Marsh. Okay, okay. uh, Yeah, I just want to ask you these for a moment. If you were given these as a, like, I'm looking to get into international management, I don't necessarily care about where it is. So it doesn't have to be in Europe. I don't have any aversions to going uh, abroad. But I want sort of an opportunity to be somewhat competitive. Would you take the U.S. job over Senegal? Yes. I think you've got more chance Over, of qualifying for the World Cup. Fair. Over Japan? Ooh, that's right on a par, isn't it? Um, mm. I think, honestly, it would depend what year it is. Because I'd be <laughs> much more excited about playing in the Asian mm-hmm. Cup in the between World Cup years than I would about playing in the Gold Cup. <laughs> that's a great answer. Uh, Chile, we've sort of talked about. What about Switzerland? 
I'd take the Swiss job. If I if yeah. I had no American connection, I'd take the Swiss job. There's just so much talent. I, it's, my, it's my lifelong dream to work with Manuel Akanji. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have more, but we're ending on that. That's good. That is the answer to my question. Uh, Daryl <laughs> Daryl has varying answers, but if if he gets to work with Manuel Akanji, then that is the answer. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so thank you, as I said to Ryan for that question. That was the one that took me, I think, the longest amount of time or took up the most time for me in thinking about it and researching yeah. and talking to Bobby and talking to you even a little bit. Uh, yeah, lots of different uh, oh, sort of varieties there. I'm glad I can contribute in Variables. some small way. Um, yes, so <laughs> I actually think we hit the answer at the start, which is it really mm-hmm. depends who you are, right? Yeah, of course. It depends yeah. who you yeah, are exactly. and how interested you are in coaching the United States and where you are in your coaching career. Yes. But the answer is you should, regardless of any of that, just always coach the U.S. national team. <laughs> I mean, I would. No matter I'd what. i take it. Yeah. Um, next question comes from yeah. Matt Hackenmiller. Matt wants to know, do you see any scenario where legendary clubs like Celtic, Ajax, and Benfica compete more consistently in the Champions League? Mm-hmm. Uh, short answer, no. Long answer, maybe. <laughs> so I'll give a slightly longer answer. The only scenario where they're able to compete more consistently in the Champions League yeah. is if they manage to increase their domestic TV rights and have more money mm-hmm. to spend, right? So yep. for Celtic, that would mean somehow a Scottish Premiership merger with the English Premier League, right? So yeah, Celtic gets basically. to play in the Premier League and uh, share the spoils, share all that money. Um, for Benfica, it would maybe mean some sort of Iberian La Liga, Iberian Peninsula La Liga, <laughs> where Benfica mm-hmm. joins La Liga um, and gets some of that some of that money. And for Ajax, there is talk of that Netherlands-Belgium merger yep. that doesn't create... It creates a big market where they have more money. It doesn't create a big enough market where they have tons and tons and tons of money, right? No, I mean, because the Belgium national team, obviously you would take that job over most other jobs. But there's not a Belgian club team that I think is more attractive, even with the possibility of uh, Champions League football, than the U.S. national team job. So no, I don't think adding Belgium to the Air Division... Yeah catapults them to that next it level. It strengthens it, um, but it doesn't become this like really like exciting product that people are going to throw mm-hmm. money at. I think the real yeah. answer is if we actually have a European Super League, then mm-hmm. those clubs would participate in that money consistently. And then eventually yeah. they would get competitive. And it wouldn't matter that um, Benfica was in the Portuguese League. It would only matter that they were in the Super League. And then yep. they could start competing after, you know, five, 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. So uh, wh- what I think this gets to is they're like Ajax, for example. Ajax were the one that I had maybe on, and that's mostly because of what we've learned about them with the consistency of style and the permanence of their system that like they made that run to the Champions League semifinal last season. And I think that's why Matt said uh, where legendary clubs like these could be more consistently in the Champions yeah. League because, yes, they made that run, but then they sort of get pillaged for their best players and they're back to square one. Like square one. Maybe if they hold on to some of them and have that style, the name recognition, maybe so. But I think your point is more valid that money is the thing that will be the the decisive factor. And so the only other way I think it could work, aside from what you've mentioned, is like right now Celtic are going to win the SPL, like barring them. I mean, this season they obviously already have, but like most seasons they're going to win barring some like sustained challenge. So why spend a ton of money to compete in the Champions League unless that is your stated objective? Yeah. So if Celtic got bought by the Saudi, like the Saudi Wealth Fund or the Azerbaijani Wealth Fund and their entire goal was to win the Champions League, then yeah, they're probably going to be I, more competitive. But but I don't think just playing in Scotland, I don't think so. Even then they wouldn't be able to do it because you wouldn't have enough players willing to join Good Celtic call. and play in the Scottish Premiership. Yeah. Um, because there's, there's, there's just not that much competition, right? Um, you wouldn't yeah. do it just for those Champions League nights, unfortunately. 
No, you would not. So, yeah, I, I think it comes down to kind of structural changes or some sort of like system-wide change. Uh, but aside from that, no, I think we've kind of got the, the biggins are always going to be the biggins the big or there may be new ones like Newcastle five years from now might be in this conversation as well in the way that yeah. Man City uh, currently is. But it's about the domestic league you're starting in, right? That's the, exactly. that's the whole problem. All right, next yes, question sir. comes from Brian Hansen. Brian Hansen says, between Grant Wall and Bobby Warshaw, your recent shows, and we've already mentioned those two guys <laughs> today's yep. show as well, your <laughs> recent shows have contemplated Tyler Adams as being the next likely US men's national team captain. So I guess Grant and Bobby have both said that at some point. Um, what attributes does Tyler Adams have that make him stand out versus other players like Zach Steffen or Aaron Long or Weston McKenney? Do midfielders make better captains? My, my my starting answer for this is that unless you are in the team, really who the captain is does not matter because <laughs> like the people that like like are the player that the players want to be their leader, like there are reasons for that. Um, but so I think when we talk about when I talk about Tyler Adams and me wanting him to be the next captain, I think sort of what I mean when I say that is like I want him to be the key figure for the national team for the next 10 years. And in my mind, that is the captain. So that's part of my answer. But my my more apt answer when it comes to the question is basically I look at an ideal captain as being a person who is going to organize the team that they're going to sort of be a calming presence in the locker room that they'll help everybody kind of stay on the same page. They're going to reassure and they're going to motivate. And I and I think from everything I've seen from Tyler Adams for club, for country, and then off the field in interviews and in conversations with journalists, in making various appearances, he is always able to very clearly and effectively communicate without necessarily getting emotional, which is another thing that I think is important, that you don't want your captain to be the one who's going to be the, the loudest screamer because that can be good in moments, but if you need someone to quietly pick people up, that's not going to work. And I feel like Tyler Adams walks a lot of the lines that tick boxes for who I want the captain to be, but that is very much based on my personal preference as opposed to what is actually required in the locker room. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think when I see Tyler Adams, I see someone who is communicating to everybody around him, at least when he was playing for New York Red Bulls, right? He seems a little quieter on Leipzig right now, but that makes sense, right? Because he's recently mm-hmm. joined, he hasn't played that many games. But I re- and I've seen him play for the US national team where he is constantly asking more of the people around him and he's setting an example in that he is yeah. relentless, right? He is absolutely relentless in terms of just personal self-improvement, but in terms of the way he plays the game. So I look at him as someone who really could elevate the performances of everybody um, around him. He's mm-hmm. kind of like Roy Keane before Roy Keane took it too far. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, I I can't. I I guess so. I can't imagine Tyler Adams being that much of a jerk, though. Well, yeah, I'm saying before Roy Keane took it too far. Is that possible? <laughs> like, wasn't Roy Keane? Like, do you think there was a time when Roy Keane was like light and fluffy? Not light and fluffy, but I think he was constantly like just demanding more of everybody around yeah. him and setting an example in terms of professionalism and competitiveness and uh, the will to win that really like provided a lot for the Nottingham Forest teams and for the Manchester United teams. And I just see elements of that in in Tyler Adams. Right. And I've even heard other players talk about seeing that in him right that's why i think he'd be a good captain and to brian's to brian's question that's not about position or about skills it's really all about personality and competitiveness Mm -hmm. 
because like we've 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 gone over this before, but to reiterate, when it comes to the actual responsibilities of the captain, though the popular parlance is like, oh, they're the only ones who are allowed to speak to the official without getting booked. That's not true, right? That's like the kind of commonly practiced thing, but not in the rule books. I think yeah. you need a captain for opening coin toss and for like deciding penalties in a penalty shootout, like who goes first there. Yeah. There's one more other minor thing, I think. The press conference stuff, you have to turn up for the press conference. Yeah, that's probably it too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But so, and then we go back to the clear and effective communication. Um, but so like, it, it's not even about like, oh, you want it to be a midfielder because then they're around the official more often. I mean, I think that they do get a little bit of leeway, but I'm with yeah, you they that do, it's, it's not one position is better than others. Yeah, so I and midfielders don't necessarily make better captains. I think maybe just the type of personality that ends up playing central midfield and running the show yeah. is the type mm-hmm. of player that maybe makes a better captain. I'd go this far yeah. as well. It would it would look great for the national team to have Tyler Adams as captain because I just think he's that type of personality that would do a great job of it. Um, but it almost doesn't matter if he doesn't wear the armband. Maybe if just the player with the most caps wears the armband, like we do an Italian-style system, Tyler Adams will still be yelling at people um, or encouraging teammates to raise their game and set in the standard. Right? It doesn't matter if he has an elastic band on his arm or not. Yeah, I'm I'm really in favor of the player with the most caps being the captain, provided uh, we make that decision at a time when Tyler Adams has the most caps than anybody <laughs> on the team. So we just schedule a game every day and get Tyler Adams to play in it. No. We'll get him 100 caps I mean, this year. I say that yes, let's make that happen. Uh, let's go the like the USA '90s route. Um, <laughs> I would say like like for the conversation we had at the very beginning of this show, like I won't be surprised if Wes McKinney wears the captain's armband. I won't be surprised if Zach Steffen does either. Aaron Long, I I, I think like. He has very high leadership rankings in FIFA. I don't know if that is going to matter, but I think you do want, and we talked about this with the USA or the Cuba USA game when it was just sort of like Christian Pulisic has to be looking around and thinking like, I play in front of like 90,000 people on a regular basis. This is not the same thing. And I think you do want your captain to have those experiences so that they've been there before and they're not walking onto the field of the World Cup being like, wow, I've never been around this many people before. Aaron Long has played in front of big crowds for a club and country, but I think you do want somebody who's a little bit higher caliber. Maybe if Aaron Long goes and plays for one of those Bundesliga teams that we've already talked about, then things change. Well, Who knows? I actually do like the way Berhalter's done it with players like Aaron Long and Tim Ream mm-hmm. where... It's to me, it's communicated to me that we're not just going with the most high profile player or like who fans think is like the the biggest name and the one they're excited yeah. about. I'm mm-hmm. I'm guessing or I'm assuming that Aaron Long and Tim Ream were given the captain's armband because they showed leadership qualities during exactly. camp, right? And so, and yeah. therefore earned it. And I, I kind That's, of like that idea at least as much as the let's give it to the most experienced player idea. You said succinctly what I was fumbling for in the very beginning of this. Simply just that, like, though I might want it to be Tyler Adams or Weston McKinney, what matters more is whatever the coach thinks and what the team thinks. Yeah. And so you can kind of rest assured that the person who is the captain for that team in that game more than likely deserves it and has earned it. And it's not just a popularity contest or yes. who Greg Berhalter saw on Twitter was trending. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think the important thing is to not, for us as fans and analysts, to not get too exercised mm-hmm. about who the captain is. And I say this just to avoid the mistakes that I've seen the British press make over the years where there would just be columns and columns and columns and columns about who should be the captain without any real insight into how being a captain works and why why it is awarded, right? But I tell you what, it's sold newspapers. Ah, British newspapers. They're the best, huh? (laughs) They're not not at all categorically the worst. They certainly are the second thing you said. Um, All right, Taylor, (laughs) thank you. Everybody who sent questions today, we really mm. did enjoy answering all of these. If you've got questions for us, it's totalsoccershow.com slash 
questions. I don't know if you saw this, Taylor, but I put the link in our Twitter bio so that people can click it more easily. Nice. That may be partly that may partly explain the uh, the the well, I don't know what to call this the uh, the very high quality of questions we've received recently. I mean, that may well be. I'm still reeling from your your setup and then pivot where you started to say thank you to me and then pivoted to to the people who asked us questions. This, I see how it is. I see how it is. Thank you to you was implied. It was implied. Um, I will say, though, thank you Hurtful. for taking the time to talk to me today. I'm going to manage Switzerland. That's it. <laughs> I was going to ask you what you've been watching lately, but I didn't uh, mention it at the top of the show. Have you got anything you've been watching that you wanted to uh, to talk about or to share? Yes, oh, I do. Okay. Uh, watch Space Force. Really? Yes. The reviews are terrible. Had, what's the reviews that? are really bad. Really? Yeah. I I liked it. Uh, so I was really hesitant going in because I knew the premise and was sort of like, oh, I don't really want another thing that's going to like constantly be, re- be reminding me of how bleak things are. Yeah. It, it is, I think, like I thought it was going to be a sort of like, oh, everybody involved is stupid. And there is some of that, but it's also... Like people are kind of make good decisions, and then they always ref, like refer to modern things, like with illusions. So like they talk about like like Flotus is in an episode. They don't say her name. Uh, like I'm trying to think of oh they they refer to a young Latina congresswoman from New York as the young angry one. They don't ever say her name. <laughs> like there's a lot of allusions to popular culture without actually saying it, which I think spares us some of the reality. Uh, so I, I enjoyed it, and maybe that's just because I love Steve Carell as much as I do. But maybe give it an episode or two and see what you. All think. right, I will. I, honestly, I was going to ignore it just because the reviews that mm-hmm. I saw. Um, but your recommendation carries some weight. So I will give it a try. Um, and it's got Malkovich being like peak Malkovich, <laughs> <laughs> like constantly wearing like like green and pink, like checked suits and and talking about how I'm not it's not a wardrobe. but It's not an outfit. It's an ensemble <laughs> actual line from him. Speaking of Steve Carell, I've been uh-huh. uh, continuing to watch The Office at your recommendation. Uh, do you remember I was asking, I think I asked you on air, like, what's the tipping point mm-hmm. of when it gets really good? Yeah. Um, and I think I texted you that the tipping point was the uh, the complaints episode. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It's a good one because that's the one where like like Dwight and Jim end up locked in a room for a period of time. Correct. I be- yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. And it's also G- G- w- w- it's when Jim oh, finally uh, tells mm-hmm. Pam how he feels because I was starting mm-hmm. to get annoyed that that was going to drag on for like yep. four seasons. So yep. to have that busted wide open and then the new office that Jim goes to and Rashida Jones is there. Now I'm mm-hmm. I'm all in. Now the whole show makes sense and I feel like it's yeah. It's gone away from being like the UK office, like it was a little too early. I feel like now it's become its own thing and it's really confident in what it's doing. This has been a review of The Office from 12 years ago, by the way. Well, here's actually, <laughs> we're going to keep it going because, you know, who cares about longevity or who cares about brevity at this point? Um, you know, have you ever had that experience where you remember like a movie or a TV show a certain way? Like, oh, it ended that way. And then you rewatch it and you just like had it wrong. No, but I can imagine that you have. Like, well, like, like, tw- like a good example of like, I looked away in like, spoiler alert for 28 days later. But like, I remember I saw it like when it first came out and I happened to like look away or she something. She wins the beauty pageant. What's she that? wins the beauty pageant <laughs> and solves the crime. It's in 28 days like, when he looks up and sees the airplane and realizes like, oh, the, the rest of the world is still going. Like, I missed that. So I didn't know that was a whole like subplot of like, that's why the military were lying in that movie. And I say all that just to say, Am I correct in saying that the British office sort of ends with the branch closing? Oh, do you know what? I can't remember. It does end with um, I, a Christmas special that ties everything yeah. up uh, neatly. I think it's, yeah. 
And I think it's like that branch manager who in the American one is from uh, where did he go? Uh, Stanford. I think that is like the one who takes over and that's where it ends in the British one. So I love that they sort of like took it a different direction if that's actually what happened. But I might be wrong. You never know. I might have missed an airplane again. <laughs> I don't know if there's an airplane at the end of uh, the office UK. Um, I'm now concerned that this is just a thing my wife and I do because Margaret does this all the time of like, oh, that movie it ended that way. And it's like, no, it categorically did not. <laughs> I want to tell you about a, a movie that I saw as well. Please. I'm going to cautiously recommend. It's on Netflix. It's called mm-hmm. The Platform. Have you seen this advertised okay. on Netflix maybe a couple of weeks ago? Yes, I have. Yes, yes, yes. I, it, was, it was very, very good, if not okay. very, very disturbing. So okay. the premise, which I'm sure you might have seen if you saw the trailer, is it's a, it's a Spanish film, so Spanish language subtitles. Um, there's a guy who wakes up in a prison, and the prison is on multiple levels, and there's a big hole in the middle of each cell. Um, and there's a table that starts at the very top in cell number one, filled with food. It's like a feast. And the table once a day slowly descends from the top uh, all the way down to the bottom. You don't know how deep it goes and you don't know at what point it runs out of food. And every month you wake up in a new cell on a different floor. Yikes. It is horrifying. It's yep. kind of like a, you know, society is scary um, mm-hmm. metaphor. Not very subtle either, but it is a very, very good movie. I would 100% recommend watching it. The platform. All right. I mean, I'm already sort of mentally fatigued from that, yeah. but I feel like that's like, like that's like preparatory mental fatigue. So let's make it happen. <laughs> so there you go. We'll end on that. All we'll right. end on that weird downer note. <laughs> so two happy recommendations and then one kind of bleak yeah, one. You can, that sounds you about can right. Have, that feels about yeah, right. Yeah, you can have a sandwich. Happy, sad, happy. <laughs> All right, Taylor Rockwell, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we'll be back again with more Total Soccer Show this week.